You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, and co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker, and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment, and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on to find out what she has to say about how property is all about people and it's not about the numbers. I think it's that human connection around, you know, having a home or not having a home. Like there's a there's a really old school um, psychological theory, Maslow's theory. Hierarchy of needs. <laughs> and it's true, like, you know, We've all got buttons that get pushed and when your needs are not being met, you know, your buttons are really easy to push. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of property market researcher and commentator Kylie Davis. Kylie's had a 25-year career in media as a senior editor and entrepreneur across News Corp and Fairfax, and at 25 was the founder and publisher of hyper-local newspaper The Village Voice. Now, I remember The Village Voice. She just completed a four-year stint as head of property solutions marketing at CoreLogic, where she described her role as chief sensemaker, responsible for cutting through the jargon of complicated data analysis, understanding the stories property data can tell, and helping the real estate industry better understand its customers and itself. Kylie's research has set the agenda for lifting professional standards for real estate agents, and she's the author of five landmark studies that identify the importance of improving the customer experience for buying and selling. And further cementing her commitment to the property industry, Kylie has also recently joined the board of PIPA, the Property Investments Professional Advisors Association. Property <laughs> Investment Professionals of Australia, isn't it? Thank you. <laughs> I always get stuck on what the PIPA stands for. But there's, there's property, there's investors, there's professionals in there. It's all good. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it does show that that's, that's sort of going another level for you, isn't it? Because it really showing a commitment to this industry. So I am very interested, or we are very interested. So welcome, Kylie, because tell us, what is it about property that's got you so inspired? Thank you. Um, I love the industry. I think what inspires me about property is that it's an amazing spectator sport, for one thing. Like we used to say at news that it was, you know, Australia's favourite spectator sport on a Saturday after the AFL. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also... I think it's such a deeply personal thing. And I think one of the mistakes that the industry makes is to kind of always think of it as a product. But in fact, what we need to start doing is tying it back to the fact that a property is shelter, a shelter is essential to our kind of emotional well-being, and then you put the numbers and the money and the size of, of the transactions with it and the and the personal cost in our lives that those sorts of transactions yeah. require, like the commitment to, to work and to, to family. And so it's got that fabulous mix of everything. It's you know, it's it's major commitment. It's it's security. It's it's your ambitions and dreams for what you want in your life, um, yep. and giving your family the best. So I'm, um, and I think bringing all of that stuff together is is what makes it fabulous. I mean, I 100% agree. It's so interesting because property people, a lot of um, people who aren't understanding the property market they see it purely just as an investment vehicle and they go oh it just doesn't make sense how could someone possibly pay this crazy price 
And what they're not understanding is there's actually a huge people element to it. And people are paying that because they're getting a huge lifestyle benefit out of living in that place. And, you know, it gives them a lot of security and shelter and family and, and things Status. like that. Yeah. And it's, <laughs> yes, yeah, so property is actually about people. And that's mm. why to me, it's, it's actually interesting because it's actually understanding people more and, you know, what they want yeah. and aspirations. And, yeah. 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 And I think where the industry, where we see really bad service or where we see really bad experiences happening in the industry is where the people factor has been forgotten mm. and either agents or investors or are just seeing it just as a product or a piece. I mean, mm. there's you need to know your numbers. You need to do all that stuff properly. But it's not just about that. It's actually about the the empathy and the connection or, you know, and the, the sense of place that you get from owning a property. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, you've written, I mentioned those five reports that you've written. Oh, seven now. Seven reports. Yeah, oh, yeah, I'm yeah. a little bit out of date <laughs> got, in my got intro. got one about to come out. On, <laughs> I think called Logical Launcher. Yeah. So what have, you, what have you got about to come out? Uh, well, we've got one in New Zealand coming out and I've also been working on the side uh, on one around property management. So looking at how landlords and tenants feel. So I haven't cut that data yet. I can't talk about it yet. But, mm. um, yeah, pulling apart. Uh, so I'll have in a couple, in by the end of this year, I'll have a full Sweet. 360 view of buyers, sellers, um, property managers, uh, sorry, tenants and landlords to see how the whole industry is performing and what the similarities or what the takeouts are of that, how, they, have how agents can improve their game. Wow, because you did launch two reports a couple of years ago, one about buyers' perception of real estate agents and mm-hmm. vendors' perceptions of real estate agents, both yep. of which are available free on CoreLogic's website. We'll include the links. Yeah, yeah. What surprising insights did you find out with these surveys? So what we found out, because we spoke only to people who had recently used an agent for either buying or selling. So it wasn't just a, you know, Roy Morgan poll looking at anyone's perception about it. There were people who had really used the industry. And what we found was that, you know, about two thirds of people who use an agent have a good or an excellent experience. So the, the numbers were higher than we thought. But what we found too was that and probably not surprising, sellers have a much better experience than buyers do, you know, which, okay, fair enough, because it's the seller that's paying for the service. But a lot of buyers don't understand that. What we found was that a really low number of, you know, a lower number than um, probably is desirable have an an excellent experience. So about sort of 14% of buyers have an excellent experience, which Mm -hmm. is really low. I think about 25% 25% of, of sellers had a really excellent experience. And when you pulled apart what made that experience excellent, they were things that were really universal that actually had nothing to do with the property. They were all to do with how those agents made the person feel when yeah. they were dealing with them and and they were rating the quality of service around that agent having their back and, and you know, making them feel like they were safe, that yeah. they were in good hands. I mean, mm. it's been a common thread when we have had agents in and they are now starting to see that there's two sides to the coin and the good agents have already been on that front foot and you know, John Cunningham and there's been others yeah, that have already said, it. you know, that Whitney. it's our mm. future yeah. customers, is our current buyers and we need to take care of them and give them a great experience. And yeah. I think there's a lot of agents out there that are moving in that direction and giving, I guess, equal weighting to their service to buyers yeah. rather than just the sellers. Yeah, because I think what um, we all forget is that whenever an agent sells a house, there's two You've got the opportunity to win two clients for life out of that. If you look after your seller all the way through the transaction, Mm. don't just sort of drop them the minute the auction's over or the minute you've actually signed them up because that was quite common. We saw that they put all their effort into selling the person into signing up with them and then 
whatever happened after that mm. was not their problem. But the agents who actually saw that transaction through all the way to the end and looked after the buyers all the way through to the end and understood that the deal wasn't done until everyone had moved into their new homes, yeah. made sure everything was working and were kind of really delighted that that's where they were now, that once that happened, that was an amazing experience for everybody involved, but very few agents were delivering it. Could even be a lot more than two as well, right? So, well, you because, know, referrals. Yeah. And if you're thinking wisely as a, an agent, you'd be saying, well, well, we've got friends and family. They know their neighbours. They've got people. As soon as they move in, they're going to meet the neighbours. Yeah. It just keeps going and going yeah. and going. Yeah, and, and we saw that too in the research that people were were more likely to, you know, refer and tell their friends and family about this amazing experience they had. And, of course, they're doing that now on social media. So that's really immediate and really it's not just something that kind of happens at the school gate when the mm. mums are, you know, picking up or, and dads are picking up the kids from school. And certainly if they've had a terrible experience, that will also happen immediately and yep. with infinite more volume. Yes, yes. I think, too, there was one word that came out in, I think, both reports, the bullshit yeah. And it seems to be that everyone actually used that word, right? Yes. Oh, look, so we had a so we had a lot of sections in the research where we asked people to comment. So that was that we did a word salad and it came up it came up quite a lot. So um so people know when they're being sold to. Yeah. And whenever they're being sold to, your emotional guard comes up. You're like, you know, can I trust this person? Are they are they really going to look after me? Are they just trying to get me to do something that they mm. want? All of that. And and because it's such a, you know, you're selling your property, uh, you're making yourself homeless or you're buying a property and you are homeless, you know, there's all this kind of emotional stuff going on in your head. You desperately want to be able to trust the person that's mm. telling you the message. Yep. But you've usually got this little guard going up. And when you find out sort of 20 minutes, half an hour, four days after the conversation that that little voice in your head saying, I don't if I can trust this guy, was true, mm. yeah. oh, the reaction to that is enormously, massive. yeah, it's massive. And I think it's interesting that you say too that your hypothesis going into this research was that um, more people are going to have a less than positive experience than actually turned out. So there's mm-hmm. that perception that yeah. you're going to have a negative experience. That sort of stuff. I guess if you're coming off a low base, potentially yes. you could be happier with a lesser outcome. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, that's what we saw. So we we saw that most people go into it with trepidation and then those agents who deliver a good or an excellent experience, that they're so surprised by that yes. often <laughs> that it amplifies the effect of, and then they, but the amplification is fantastic because mm. it means that they'll then tell their friends, tell their family about this great agent who really looked after them or did the right thing by them. And so those agents that get that stuff right really benefit from it. But I think the thing too that came out of the research is, well, so, and I get asked this even by friends and family all the time. It's like, oh, we need to sell what should, who should we look like, which which agent's the best? Mm. And it's kind of like, well, that's the wrong question. Like it is the right question and the wrong question. Yep. You don't just want to go on who's got the most sales in what's the area. What's the measure of best? What's the measure of best? Yeah, like, you yeah. know, so if... And what's what's happening in your life at the moment that's going to affect that measure of best? Mm. Like if you're just in a complete mindset around the numbers, then yeah. the kind of service you're going to be wanting is very different if you're seven months pregnant with a husband who's travelling all the time and you've got to be out by, you know, yep. you want to be moved in by Christmas. That's going to be a very mm. different agent yep. experience that you're going to want. So from the research, we can see too what buyers and sellers should be looking for and expecting when they want to buy or sell. That's a really good tip, actually. I mean, we help quite a lot of our clients choose selling agents and also mm-hmm. help them manage their process behind the scenes. Yep. And, you know, we, we talk about that, that looking for the, you know, if you've got 
the agent that has sold the most, then they're what we call a volume agent. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a great experience. It could mean that you actually sell quickly. Yep. Could mean a number of things. And then it comes down to what's most important for you. But if you want somebody who's going to nurture you through that whole experience and you're going to feel confident that the advice they're giving you is in your best interest, not theirs, yep. then there's that's a whole different set of measurements that you need to be looking at or set of characteristics, shall Absolutely. we say. Yeah. I mean, we, we spoke about it. One of the early episodes, there's a great way is actually to pretend you're a buyer and go around Absolutely. some similar properties. I tell, I tell everyone to do it. So my steps are, first of all, go on to realestate.com or domain and have a look at houses like yours that are on the market at the yep. moment. Mm. Then go and attend those open for inspections. Yep. And don't give too much away, but just say, look, you live locally and you're thinking, you know, you're checking out the, you know, you're checking out either upgrading or looking at properties like this at the moment and yep. see how the agent treats you. Yeah, hundred percent. Because how the agent treats you as a, but do not tell them that you're thinking of selling. Exactly. I do not do that yet. Don't not not yet. Yep. Don't do that yet. Mm. But at the first time you meet them, just go and kick the tires on a property that is a bit like yours, and see. Ask them some questions about it. See how they tell you that they're marketing it. See what they, you know, and and read the vibe. Like, do mm. you like the person? Yeah. Do you feel that they're, um, and do they call you on Monday or Tuesday or whenever it is that they say they're going to? Do they do what they say they're going to do? Because that was one of the key things that came out of the research that mm. upsets people the most yeah. um, when they're buying or selling is that the agent doesn't follow through on the promises that they made. Be interesting to see if you did the research again now, now that the market has turned, because I think you did it what back in 2015. Would that be right? Yeah, 2015 we did the sellers one, and it's mm. time to redo that. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd really like to. I'm, I'm probably going to. Yeah. yeah, well, it would be. Yeah, really interesting to see how do selling agents operate differently? Is there a big change when the market tightens up? And I know for a fact they have to change. Yeah. You know, but I certainly... don't know if the market's tightened enough yet for long enough yet to <laughs> yeah. facilitate that change, but I, I, it would still be interesting to have another look at it at the, num- at the numbers. Yeah, I mean, when you've got 100 people going to your open homes and, yeah. And oh, you, you can be as la- laissez-faire as you like. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. just going to sell Pizza itself, buy. I a guess. A doorstop will um, sell a house. <laughs> <laughs> I guess on a behavioural, why does it really matter? Do you really, does the agent have to be someone that's liked? And I guess. When someone's buying, they can very easily get offended and not like the agent who's selling the property. Mm. And it could, to be honest, actually mean that they actually don't go to the property auction or they don't actually put an offer in because they've got such a bad tension with the agent that they don't really like it. They get a bad yeah. experience when they walk in. And so they're walking around the property, or well, that guy was a bit of a, you know, et cetera. And they, you know, that whole negative emotion could actually mean that they might not even buy the property that they really want. It's good for our business. Yeah. I can tell I you that we've had people come to us saying, so-and-so's got this listing, I want to buy it, but I do not want to deal, deal with, with them him. again. Yeah. Mostly it's hims, but there are a few hers. And, you know, yeah, I'm like, bring it on. Yeah, I'm happy to deal with that I, person. <laughs> I think so. I, you know, I know that there are issues in the US with their model because it's a lot more expensive and, and they take a, a you know, in the US, they take a commission at both sides of the sale. But I think there's really a role right now uh, for us to be starting to have a conversation about the role of buyers agents and seeing that rise in the industry because we're in this sort of digital age now where it's really easy to do it yourself. And in the old days of real estate, where before tech, you know, before disruption it happened, the way you used to look for a property was you would go down the high street and have a look in the window. And as you were looking in the window, the agent would come out and say, see anything you like. And what, you what are you looking for? Jump in my for? car and I'll take jump you to see Jump in my car, I'll come and show <laughs> you. And, you know, they were servicing buyers that way. Mm. But then um, but then suddenly all the portals opened up and, and all of poor old buyers got completely outsourced and got told, look, you can just help yourself, do mm. it, you know. Mm. 
but why? It, there was there was no transaction that they were making cheaper. Um, you know, buyers weren't paying anything when they went and saw the agent in the high street and and getting serviced like it like they were. Mm. Suddenly, they we kind of diddled ourselves out of this amazingly valuable service of being looked after to find a property that we wanted to buy. And then the agents are going, "No, oh, it's not fair. Now, you know, we're not getting listings anymore." And and you know buyers are lies. It's like, well, you never set a relationship up with them to actually genuinely find out what they wanted in the first place anyway. You're relying on them to click the algorithm to spit up the right sort of houses and then turn up. So I think what we're seeing now is this, we've been doing that for 10, 15 years now, and we know that we can do it really quickly and we know we can help ourselves, but sometimes we don't want to. Sometimes I would rather pay some money or I would rather Mm. go and get a service that I know is going to have my back. That's rather interesting because I know that you're a bit of a fan of technology. I've I been, do, I love it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm a complete, been reading, complete so, nerd girl. Yeah. yeah, and you only just got back from the US and you were at a whole conference over there. Yeah. What, where do you see, that's an interesting, uh, I guess, perspective on how technology, which is in one, on one hand helped buyers but on the other hand hindered buyers because then, you know, buyers are then dumped with all that that work. And I know too a lot of agents talk about the fact that buyers have all this this information at their fingertips now. Like you can look at the last time sold and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, an overload of information can sometimes hinder buyers as well as help them. So where do you see the industry generally going? Because I think, you know, there is disruption happening. It's happened. Mm. Um, And it's not going to, it's going to get faster, not worse. So, so I think we're at a really exciting time because for the last 15 years, the technology has been making things faster and more efficient the way we always used to do them. But what the technology gave us was a whole pile of extra work to do in order to facilitate the, the speed. Mm. So, you know, suddenly you can advertise on Facebook instead of having to advertise in the paper or whatever, but suddenly now you have to become a Facebook digital marketing expert. Mm-hmm. So everything that technology took off our mm. plates, it gave us five more things to do or to learn, which yep. is exhausting. That's yep. why we're all exhausted. Yep. <laughs> Where we're going though now is that we're about to kind of see the real promise of technology delivered in that voice activation and AI is starting to come in. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm actually really bad at most technology. Like I just changed my phone over, people were laughing at me, all that sort of stuff. But because I'm Apple made us all impatient with bad user experiences, like we want it to be beautiful, we want it to be easy to use, voice activation is going to take that to the complete next level because instead of having to peer into a screen and work out how it works and work out which buttons to press, you're just going to be able to say, hey, do this for me and the computer will do it and it will remember it and it will start to kind of, you know, the the data behind it will start to remember. So the reason that's important is because what's going to happen is that the technology is getting easier, which means that our ability to execute more quickly will be less stressful for us, which means we'll start to share more and do more with it which means that actually for real estate agents, but for everybody, it's actually going to become about the relationships that we have with people again and the technology is going to facilitate that instead of getting in the way of it. Mm. I think voice is the so one of the biggest. I hope that's not too geeky. No, yeah, no, no. It's, it's great. <laughs> I agree with voice. It's so understated. I mean, one of the things we, <laughs> It is. I mean, it, 100%. Shut because, it out. <laughs> uh, because we don't really know how it's going to change things and it is because we, we record this podcast, obviously. We get it transcribed. We get 40 pages of content. Yeah. 40. So we get maybe. We're not doing enough with it. (laughs) Well, no, but we get like 20,000 words or something Mm. and we record in an hour. Yeah. And so if we had to type 20,000 words, you know, almost a book out of, you know, what episode. And 
that's just the power of just, you know. You send it to REV.com and they transcribe yeah. it overnight and you get it back and it's like 20 bucks or exactly. something. It's right. ridiculous. Yeah. And a I little think... bit longer. It's 60 bucks. Oh, okay. Yeah. And it's that's US good. dollars just quietly. Can we have some Australian <laughs> ones here, please? <laughs> I think there's so much power. I mean, Google have got their whole booking system now. You know, you can book a haircut. Oh, Google, book me a haircut. And yeah. you can go through, make a phone call to the, the hairdresser a voice will automatically say, when can I book a haircut in? It automatically just done. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty um, amazing. So how's that actually going to come into the real estate market though? So I think for real, for, for agents or for, for buyers and sellers? Both, Both yeah. So, all, all yeah. so for agents, I think we're going to, it's going to make life a lot easier for us. Um, I'm not an agent, I but love for, it. I love for it. the industry. Yeah, the royal we. Uh, the, the royal <laughs> we, yeah. It's going to make life a lot easier because we're going to be able to say, if I meet Veronica at a, we're soccer mums and we're at the soccer field and she finds out I'm an agent, she's thinking about selling her home and says, oh, you know, I'm, you're an agent, aren't you? I'm with, oh do you know what my house would be worth? Or do you know what that one up the road sold? And you, instead of having to go into your CoreLogic or your domain app and look it up or, or you know, if if you're that savvy that you're doing it, you can actually just open up Facebook, yeah. connect with her, and, and by the end of the chat have sent a report on the property that she was look, thinking about or that she wanted to know the price of, a property, a report on your property, given you some answers around that, put into your database, set up a notification to say give yeah. her a call in three days' time. Um, can we you do know, that now? put you onto your CRM. Yeah. There is stuff that can help you start to do it. You need to talk to Ian Campbell at Air. Yeah, it's um, AI, yeah. I mean, that's AI, the power AI. of it. So uh, you know, if that, then this, and yes. so you basically create all these connectors. So if I ask for a report, it will then go to CoreLogic, download the report, then that will then email to your email, and you're right. It's just automating all the systems yeah. behind the scenes. Yeah, I guess on the. The buyer side, I mean, what's some other things a voice will kind of activate? Well, I think instead of having to peer into, you know, a portal to kind of start to look for things that you think you might, you'll be able to sort of sit at home with Google Home or Alexa and say, hey, Google, tell me what the open for inspections are for four-bedroom homes this weekend and both get that put into your calendar, the maps sort of put into your phone so that you know exactly where you've got to go, plot that against your calendar with taking the kids to soccer or, you know, making sure that that's all a doable you know, functional weekend, then start to say, look, you looked at four bedroom homes in this price bracket, but you said that's above what you said you could afford. I found four bedroom homes in this other suburb that is similar. And so the algorithms will start to find things that, you know, are similar to what you're looking for and start to direct your searching the more information you give it. And I think that's that's great. I mean, yeah, easy question. So there'll be no point for hot spotting. You'll know ne- there'll be no more hot spot articles about the next spot in Sydney oh, for God, property so because Alexa, Google will already tell, have told you. I think, I think it was episode six when we interviewed Kent Lardner and he, and he said, you know, going to will a robot take my job? It's a, it's, I think it's will a robot take my job.com, I think. Yep. Plug in your job and yes. it gives you a predictor as to how irrelevant it's going to be or basically obsolete or extinct. Mine is 97% chance going to be extinct. <laughs> So <laughs> time to disrupt, boys and girls. <laughs> um, but that's because it doesn't take into account. It's basically looking at appraise as opposed to, you know, yeah. that relationship you're talking about and the advice piece and the psychology of of buying and understanding needs and motivations and advising clients. Because the thing is if Alexa's going to come back and say, right, well, this is a suburb where you can get a four-bedroom home within your budget, 
But the reality is a three-bedroom would suit you perfectly because, exactly. you, you know, like you actually need to be counselled in a way. Yeah, that, absolutely. That's probably the limitation of technology, I'm yes. hoping. Yes. I'm hoping there's some limitations. Well, well, I think that the better the algorithms get, the more space that then gives us to have relationships. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but my last sort of five to ten years, the more I got an iPhone, you know, 10 years ago, which which I thought was the most amazing thing. And ever since I got it, my life has just been absolutely frantic. Mm. And so because you're just are trying to squeeze more and more and more in a day, but it all requires peering in and, and mm. typing with your thumbs and all that sort of stuff, whereas that's going to sort of all start to disappear and we will have time to have conversations and coffee again yeah. and have yeah. chats because knowing that we can just tell the computer what we want. This is the Industrial Revolution Four. Mark Four, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. Definitely. I was, I was at a, um, a talk about the future of work yep. yesterday, and yeah, it's all about how that's going to change and how we are. Uh, there's something like 800 million people expected to go into transition in the world. 800 million workers, because you know that everything is going to change so much that we all have to change the way we think, the way we upskill ourselves, our attitudes, how we value ourselves. Yeah, like so that busy. Like if you if you're mm. valuing yourself by being constantly busy, that might not. Be yeah. The best way. yeah. Yeah. So we go on I'll a whole. Bring field. that on. God. Yeah. Same here. <laughs> so I'm always trying to think with with clients is what could go wrong with how they're investing. And I guess technology is one of these things that can change the game for property a lot. Five G internet. You know, yep. we don't really know, but that will change the access to internet all over the country. Yep. And it'll be fast. And so the ability of getting to the office and ha- having internet access. Maybe you don't, can work from home, you know, uh, video conferencing, you know, do you need to travel to the city to, to work in an office, you know, driverless cars, you know, there are lots of big technology things that could mean that, you know, the ability to have to work in the CBD and the cities, you but know, the, But can the reduce. changing workforce basically means that there's going to be more contingent type of work. And that and that has implications for the traffic. Yeah. Like if, if everybody's not trying to jump onto Parramatta Road at sort of eight o'clock in the morning to get into work by nine, like if our work days become more staggered, mm. if we're only in the office a couple of days a week, it has implications for our where we choose to live. So if you don't need to be in the exactly. office every single day, you might choose to go further out. Mm. If you don't need to be driving, if something, if a car is driving itself for you, like heaps of impact around that. You can spend that time in the car like you would in a train. So suddenly you mm. can actually go further out because the car will drive you out. You don't necessarily need to own a car Correct, because, yeah. you know, the car can just be yep. driving itself or sharing itself while you yeah, <laughs> love that I idea. But, it's gorgeous, isn't it? But here's the thing too. I think, um, I think Greg Dickerson from CoreLogic said that there's 4 million garages around Australia. Mm. Well, if you don't need to own a car because it's driverless and you can just order one whenever you want one, then what happens to all of those garages mm. around Australia? Well, we know we're all struggling to, you know, housing affordability is a real issue. Does that mean that we're going to start airbnb our garages, like converting and, 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 and getting, turning them into other usable space? Does it mean, you know, generational families suddenly get, you know, the garage gets converted into something where, you know, people are, does, how does that affect the value of homes? Do we yep. start to see garages being kind of almost strutted off? Mm. Like, could that, yeah, I mean, a client called Could me part own? a couple of mm. weeks ago and um, he's got a you know apartment in Bellevue Hill. He's got a garage and the neighbours just sold. They, and the owner of when he's bought the other one wants to have a second garage, you know, why not? Mm. Um, and so he's offered to buy my client's garage. And so I was like, well, what's how, do you, that, what, what's how does that work on the title? Yeah, yeah. And what's it worth? And how much does, like, do they pay 100000 mm. They pay 300000 
Um, and we had this really good conversation around it. I was like, well, you're going to hold this forever. You know, he's yeah. in his mid-30s and it's an amazing place. He's not, no plans to sell it. Will you need a, a garage? Will that be so valuable in 30 years' time? Yeah. You know, are you better to cash in now and move that money elsewhere? And this is, these are all the things that, you know, technology yeah. will, will yeah. cause. Mm. You know, a client right now is trying to buy an apartment in Surrey Hills, you know, hasn't got parking. Yeah. And so we had a really good conversation around it's Surrey Hills. Do you really need parking? Like, you know, yeah. and you know how many and- Ubers are around you right now? Yeah. yeah. Well, I've got a client. We're looking right now at a property in Elizabeth Bay. Same deal. Doesn't have parking, and and so I said to her, "Do you have a car?" She says, "Well, I do," and I've been thinking I could get rid of it. Yeah. And so, and in certain suburbs such as Surrey Hills and Darlinghurst, Elizabeth Bay, Potts Point, etc., yeah. that is something that that residents are more than prepared to do. There are certain areas, though, currently and for the foreseeable future, no. You know, if they don't have good infrastructure, yes. that that there's you've got a long way to go before that happens. So therefore, you're going to need your car. Yeah. But yeah, so it's it's very much area specific, and it's good to have these conversations because you can already see that changing with car share economies. That yeah. such a thing. Oh, certainly with Uber and and car shares, the ability to get really on demand transport in these in those areas is really high now. Transport uh, for New South Wales, they're actually oh, yeah. trying to be innovative, yeah. and so what they've got now, they're doing pilots of on demand buses within suburbs yeah, yeah. and they'll take you to the key transport hub. So, you know, in the Eastern Beaches, for example, they'll pick you up at your house yeah. in a van yeah. and then take you to the ferry station or the it's train like station. It's like the RSL. The RSL club. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's just the RSL model. Like we rolled out to scale. 20 cent pieces for the pokies. Yeah. <laughs> that's right. That's right. You're too drunk, we'll drive you home. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, that, that to me, there's a whole other option, right? You know, it's it's now I live two k's from the train station. Maybe that's okay. You know, yeah. if a bus is going to pick me up from the front door, take mm. me to the train station. Well, my parents live uh, about seven hours down the coast in a little town called Kalaroo, which is near Bega, in between Tartha and Bega. So they have a similar thing is that if you want to go to the city or go to Sydney, the bus company will pick you up from your place, then they drive you up to Canberra and you catch the train up. And it it actually only takes about an hour and a half longer than if you decided to drive yourself. So, Mm. you know, it doesn't have to be a super fancy non Personed car, Mm. um, self driving car. But, But I think the two, the other thing that's going to affect that is that. Being able to drive yourself means that you'll be able to live at home longer even because, you know, the elderly get very isolated Mm. in their homes when they can't get out. But if you can have a self-driving, I mean, I'm hoping my my retirement involves, you know, just being able to call, as long as I can either tell Google that I want to, you know, spit the words out without losing my teeth to (laughs) say that I want a car to turn up to take me shopping. Yeah, it will change all of that, It'll change that too. Yeah, Yeah. because, I mean, I know my dad's, what, 82, I think he is. Something like that. No, he's 84 now. Jesus. And, you know, he's still driving. My mum doesn't drive. Hmm. And the minute he loses his licence, which has got to happen at some point. Life changes Especially when I've been in the car with him. Oh, my God. No, that's it's just like they've become so dottery. Anyway, that's a whole different different topic. But they are a long way away from a station and not an easy walk to a bus stop either. No, and no. they will then be forced to sell the house. And, and yeah. Uh, yeah. But do you so, need to leave the house? Like nowadays... You know, you well, can actually can come to you. absolutely yeah. everything from alcohol to food to gut. Mm. Yeah, but they might work from introvert. I'd go stir crazy if I was. Yeah. It'd be like being in prison. Yeah, but I mean, generally <laughs> speaking, a lot of the daily errands that you know people, older people, have to go mm. out and achieve. Well, yeah. they don't need to. I mean, everything, food, groceries, everything can be delivered. Mm. And so, when you leave the house, you actually just go out for social yeah. sort of events. The so the yeah. ability to to you know. 
you know, live at home, I guess, is just going to become easier, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah so there's lots and lots of changes ahead. Yep. I think the information side of things, I mean, you've been at CoreLogic for the last four years and so mm. there's a lot of data in that and obviously buyers look to this data often uh, and we've had um, a number of other uh People that we've interviewed, we've interviewed uh, Kent Lardner. I should always have my little list of episodes here so I can refer back so the listeners can go back in these episodes. But look for Luke Metcalf, Kent Lardner, uh, John Linderman. And we've talked a lot about the data needs interpretation. Yep. What are the current limitations with the way in which data is put out there for people to consume? And how do you see that improving with technology? Look, I think there's an awful lot of data available out there at the moment. But I think where it becomes tricksy is that it's like this whole self-service economy. You have to kind of teach yourself how to do it, which is both great and also, you know, difficult and annoying. So one of the things I see that most people make mistakes around the data is put Mm. too much emphasis on the median sales price and what that's done. Mm -hmm. Because as we were talking about before, you know, that's completely able to have a lot of compositional bias in it. You know, you never know necessarily how many sales that's based on mm, yeah. uh, and whether it reflects a certain part of the market selling or not, although they're all good questions to ask when you when you look at it. Yeah. So you've got to Third look at level. the data and understand that there is compositional bias, which basically means that it is. I like median value. I always look at median, median value. value. So because, how is that different to median price? Yes, um, so median price is based off the sales or median sales price is based on the the data based only off the properties that have sold in that area over the time period of the data, mm-hmm. whereas median value, um, so CoreLogic captures median value as part of their AVM, so they assess pretty much every property around the country or the majority of properties around the country every single day for the banks as part of bank valuation software. So a median value price for a suburb is based off the overwhelming majority of properties in the suburb So it, and, and, the, and the AVM valuation of those properties. So... It, oh, okay. If you know, so you might find that you're in a suburb like, say, you know, Five Dock, and, and the median sales price might be one point two. I'm kind of making numbers up mm, here, yeah, um, yeah. Um, but the median value might be sort of one point one. Interesting. So yeah. the one point two will be reflecting what's selling because four bedroom homes are selling yeah. at the moment, but yeah. one point one will be based on what's been happening across a much larger number of properties. So what, what actually exists in the yeah. marketplace. And so yeah. if it says that the median value has gone up by 10%, then that's a much stronger number to anchor off than of, than saying the median sales price has gone up. But with the median value, because it, you know, because you might base a median sales price off sort of 25 sales for the year in a suburb, whereas the median value will be based on 2,000 houses in the suburb. And it comes back to that statistically significant number. And that's, The bigger the numbers, the more stable they yeah, are. Yeah, yeah. And, and more reliable they are. That's so the rule. I actually just did a bit of analysis and I wrote a blog last week, which I will post, and it's all about underneath the, the media and, and understanding what's in it and why a, a one suburb may go up, the suburb next door may go down. And mm. it doesn't actually mean that all prices have gone up at all. It's actually all about that in one suburb, and, and I was looking at San Susie's an, an example, that in one year, eight waterfront properties sold, and the following year, no waterfront properties sold. And yeah, so the median exactly. price went down 16 point something percent. And of course, it's going to go down. Yeah. And likewise, if you had a suburb like Rushcutters Bay with a whole bunch of studio apartments sell one year, yes. and the next year they don't, it's going to make it look like mm. the actual it's prices are up. going up. Yep. You know, and the thing is that if you are, and so prices are going up and, and they actually might be falling. And the reality is that when you've got like first home buyers, for instance, really populating a market and they're competing furiously for anything up to 650 and then yeah. everything falls off a cliff after 650, it might look like 
median prices are falling in that area because nothing no big properties are selling, only smaller properties. Mm. But you tell that to a first home buyer who's competing for not enough stock, they're saying no prices are rising. So this sort of stuff can happen underneath in the yeah. actual marketplace while the median looks like it's going up or down. Yeah. So I think people get really hung up on data in that they think, oh, if it's data, it has to be true mm. or it has to be wrong. There's, mm. you know, there's, there's oh, a, right. We often have this headspace that either I have to trust it completely or I have to distrust, it's got to be wrong. And that's the wrong way to kind of think about it. I used to tell my guys at News Corp because they're a bunch of journalists who loved words and showing them a whole bunch of numbers and mm. saying, here, here you go, write stuff about that and originally freaked them all out. But but where we got to is like it's not about you don't have to memorise stuff. You, you What you have to do is go, what is the data? What is the data for, sub, you know, for, for Leichhardt or Greenacre or, or, you know, Dandenong or whatever suburb you're looking at? What is it? That's a snapshot in time of what's happening now. But really the more important question is why? Why is that happening now? Mm-hmm. What's leading this to happen to, for these numbers to be like this? Because it's in the why around the data that will give you the information that you really need mm. to make a good decision. Love it. So, yeah. So you've got medium. What are some of the other things where people are clinging on to? Like, I mean, clearance rates was obviously one, but, I mean, there are other things that people are looking at the data and going, well, this must be true because this is happening. So clearance rates is actually a really useful tool for buyers and sellers to use. So if you're a seller and you're seeing that clearance rates are really high, you know that your auction's probably going to go well or you can look forward to a, a, a good, strong auction. If you're seeing that they're lower, it means you really need to, that probably your agent isn't managing you down. You really need to do a bit of a reality check on your price expectations and have a plan for what happens if you don't clear at auction. If you're a buyer, it's the opposite. You know, if you know that the clearance rates are really high, you're going to need to have quite a lot in your arsenal to to win the property. Um, or you try and make a pre-auction offer. Or make a pre-auction <laughs> offer. You know, yeah, just have to adjust your strategy. Yeah. So, I mean, look, the data basically tells you what your strategy should be. Um, and then I always like, um, there's, there's two little known numbers that I always like to look at, which is time on market, which yep. not everybody yeah. looks at, but that's really important. Yeah. Mm. Um, and then also vendor discounting, which is based on the private treaty discounting that's going on. Yeah. So I love those because if you actually graph them, and I'm going to geek out a bit here, but if you graph them against each other, they start to helix. There's a correlation. So when the, the, yeah. the reverse correlation, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, they, so when time on market starts to go up, vendor discounting will um, get high, like more and more vendor discounting, so they start to separate. And when um, vendor discounting um, gets really low, time on market is usually low. And and you can see when they start to move, if you're ever looking for an indicator of what's the market doing, is Mm. it moving, which way is it moving, plot those two numbers like over time against against each other and you'll start to see them behave like a DNA strand. A beautiful tip. So if you want to predict a market, that's what you need to do. Yeah. I guess the only problem with that is that – if we sometimes people look for easy bits of data, so they'll go for the Sydney, well, the Sydney clearance rate is falling, or the Sydney time on market's getting longer, or there's bigger discounts in Sydney. But people don't buy Sydney; they no, they buy, don't. No, you um, buy micro markets. You know, they'll buy Bellevue yeah. Hill, or they'll buy Manly, or they'll buy you know Blacktown. And the da- the differences in the clearance rates across the eastern beaches versus the northern suburbs versus the western suburbs can be massively different. You mm, get ninety yeah. percent clearance rates in you know, eastern suburbs, but 50 in, yeah. you know, the western suburbs. And, I mean, I guess the same thing with time on market and discount. So, Well, we asked Kate Lumby about that, I think, was that episode five, I think. I really should have my list with me. And, you know, and, and she's out of Dural Way uh, mm. around Kenthurst Dural and um, she said that there's a opposite 
that her market behaves the opposite to Bondi. So if Bondi got high, oh, right. she's, rates, the correlation she's got low and if <laughs> hers are high, Bondi's would be down. But So that's a good illustration of that. But I think that's actually a great um, indicator of why you still need to talk to your agents. So mm-hmm. like if you hear, so I remember um, I, I, I did my MBA a couple of years ago and one of my cult, my cohort mates had just bought a brand new house actually in San Susi. And, <laughs> um, and the market was kind of, tanking like it was sort of and like well, he bought it and then the kind of market started to slide again and he rang me in a complete pants like oh what have I just done exactly the wrong thing and and oh my god you know I'm freaking out and, and I said to him look is it your forever home and he's like yeah. and he's like what do you mean I said like, is this the home where your kids are going to grow up and you're you going to stay you're going to be there for 20 years or 20 years plus because every th- conversation we've had around that is like this house is amazing for you guys and you absolutely love it and he goes yep my wife's super happy and but you know the mortgage is big and blah, blah, blah. It's like, dude, if you are super happy in Sydney, don't don't listen to the mm. the, the noise about what the Sydney market is doing. Think about what San is doing. Don't worry about it. Like, just keep on top of the mortgage and and make all you know. Make sure that's under control. But unless there's a zombie apocalypse, really, and you know, you're going to probably be okay because what's happening now is going to just kind of slide through. And and um. And it's and it's true. I think you need to kind of invest for the invest for the long term and know your local market, like the stuff that's going on around your local market. And probably your agent is best able to tell you what the clearance rates are for your local, you know, suburb market. Yeah. Look, you know, I think that if you invest enough at the front end before you actually buy the property, mm. and you do exactly. know that it's exactly what you want, and you have really researched your price, and you've really been clearing your negotiation, all those sorts of things, and then you know the market sort of suddenly corrects or does whatever it does afterwards. It's like, you know, well, I made all the decisions for the right reasons of the, all the best information I had at the time and I have to have to hang my hat on all that decision-making and not worry about now because it's a bit like going back to Tinder after you just got married. Exactly. It really is. That's a great <laughs> <laughs> That's right. There's, yeah. yeah, I mean, there's two sides to it, isn't there? There's one side is you've got to do due diligence because you want to make sure you're making, you know, in 10 years' time, you know, if it's a wrong decision, you'll only blame yourself. If you know that you rushed into it subconsciously, you'll know that you just made that mm. decision quick mm. and it'll come back to bite you mm. if it's a wrong decision. But if it was a wrong decision and you know you did everything you could to, to I guess, you, you can't, it's easy in hindsight just to forgive yourself, I guess, if you've done the due diligence. Or make a different decision. Yeah. Yeah. Like just go, okay, well, this isn't working for us anymore. Now it's time to sell. That's like, exactly you know? right. And um, so so two things come to mind there. Like you get you should sort of like all builders do, it's like measure twice and then mm. cut. Um, and which I think you should always do when you're buying and selling yeah. a home. Um so true. Because yeah. once you cut, once you're bought, mm. you know, getting out of it is is extraordinarily expensive and stressful. And the other thing too is that you don't have to buy at the bottom and sell at the top. No, you to don't. Make, to make money. Well, you only do, do if do you're well. a speculator. You know, I mean, in reality, if that's what you want to do when you are a, a, a property picker, yeah. you know, a market picker or property picker, then, you know, yes, but you've got to recognise that that's a very, very, very small percentage of investors. Mm. Um, that do that. And and you have to invest your time and energy. It's like the stock market because people make a full-time job of that. Yeah. You know, you can't, you just can't make it a side hustle and no. and do that. No. Well, the majority of the market is driven by owner-occupiers and you don't say, oh, I'm not going to buy a house now. I'm going to wait till the kids are six it. or, you know, you want a house, you've got a, you know, babies. You, you, and so a lot of there's always going to be buyers who are looking to, as their well, life actually, progresses. Actually, I'll kick in on that just for a bit because the thing is that 
a solid market, a firm market, a low-risk market is driven by owner-occupiers mm. um, as opposed to a market that's just boomed because of investors. Mm. And I was actually talking to um, an agent actually from Penrith only mm-hmm. this week and I was saying, what's happening out there in the market? And he said, well, 60% of the market has evaporated because 60% previously was investors. investors yeah. wow. And you go, wow, that's a big number. So what about the rest? So the 40% left, you know, yeah. who are they? Most of them are first home buyers. Yeah. So they're all basically capped at 650, you know, in order to yeah. get their benefits, which means that, you know, any if you've got a property that's worth less than 650, that's great. You're going to get competition for it. But over 650, the market falls in a hole. And also it comes back to we interviewed Kate Bacos, uh, episode 24, 3 maybe. Um, and, you know, she used the term aspirational or affordable. There's two different sort of um, terms to re- to view markets. And so when you've got a market that's driven by affordability, it doesn't have the fuel behind it, the oomph behind it to really fuel that capital growth story, you know, whereas we're in an aspirational market where you've got a lot of owner-occupiers wanting to upgrade, for instance, there's a lot behind that as a solar capital growth performer down the track, you know. I'm sort of going a bit off-piste here, aren't I? But um, I think that those two terms are really important to consider. And so, yeah, so and that's the difference. When you've got an owner-occupier fuel market, that's what's driving it. It's very different than, say, an investor fuel market. Mm. Anyway, on that, different, you've been known to say that real estate makes people crazy. Oh, yeah, I have. <laughs> it does. <laughs> why, why is that? I think it's that human connection around, you know, having a home or not having a home. Mm. Like there's a there's a really old school um, psychological theory, Maslow's theory. Hierarchy of needs. Of needs. <laughs> and it's true. Like, you know, we've all got buttons that get pushed and when your needs are not being met, you know, your buttons are really easy to push. And um, and I think putting your home on the market and all of the, I mean, look, it's hard work, isn't it? God, you've got to get the house ready. You've got to do all those jobs you haven't done for like 20 years or 10 years. You've got to pack everything in boxes. You've got to make the house amazingly beautiful and then you sell it to someone else um, for the privilege of being homeless for a while while you try and then go and fight to be treated like rubbish as a buyer. So, you know, it's it's a really terrible time. Um and there's a lot of psychological stuff going on underneath all of that. And I think real estate agents are starting to realise it and the best ones are starting to realise it and realising that a lot of their role is actually in that counselling and, psycholo- and psychology space of reassurance mm. and mm. empathy. And um, and also a lot of people sell their homes at the worst possible times like divorces or, you know, deaths or things like that. Yep. So. So they're already emotionally fragile. Yeah. And so I think then also the industry has to deal with a lot of people who are under stress, which then puts them under stress, yeah. which makes everybody crazy. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny because I heard you say that and then I actually read an article that you wrote for Property Observer, which we'll yeah. put the link in, and that is talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs, which I remember learning about in consumer behaviour. Mm. And um, there's five um, levels and it starts off with, you know, basically the basic needs, which are food and shelter and it moves mm-hmm. To property, and then it's love, and then it's um sort of self esteem, and then it's self actualization, which is the pinnacle, which we're all we're all love. aspiring to get to. Yeah, I've, when you <laughs> Google Maslow's hierarchy of needs now, you actually come up with a, a, another version, which is the millennials version. It's got seven layers oh, underneath. Okay. So down the bottom, yeah. two extra layers have been added, right, yeah. for millennials. So more important than food and shelter and water, yeah, are Wi-Fi, Wi-Fi and battery <laughs> strength. <laughs> 
battery power. Scary, yeah. but anyway, that's that's yeah. a segue. I think that we often talk in our business as property therapy, which is yes. what, what we offer our clients because, you know, it's, it is that the empathy and understanding the stresses and particularly with a couple, you know, when there's two or, yep. two or more people involved in a transaction um, or in a decision-making process, getting both uh, adequately heard and and you know because quite often what we'll see <laughs> we'll see couples that have may have been in this this process of trying to buy say for some years at times yeah. you know it's limbo it's horribly disruptive in terms of not having that sense of place so you know the idea of not having your home settled really does infect other areas yeah, of everything your life. you do yeah. yeah yeah and you know and then you've you the, the blame game can often start as well so yep. it, you know the, it's a great way to test your relationship that yeah. renovating yeah yes yeah. also yes. involving yeah. property yeah <laughs> and i think it's amplified a lot at the moment and the day you know we're in a boom and prices have doubled and so everyone can't have what they want at the moment and so that's even more stressful so we're going to have to change our expectations on what we thought we would own and that's a big shift I mean, on the other end of the scale as well, homelessness, you know, the impact of higher prices is creating stress and families, rents are going up, there's not enough social housing, migration. So you add all these elements in, you can see why people are getting so, you know, fearful around actually just home ownership. Um, yeah. Mm. Well, even like even when you compare now to what 20, 30 years, like the days of the 16% interest rates, people now, couples now are, Paying like this, I mean, paying a mortgage is is like and most the most you know you have to both be in a job. Yeah, you have to really plan to have children and to make sure that you can afford to cover that gap. Like the mortgage sizes that people are paying today, normal mm. families are paying today, and then you add childcare and you add all that stuff into yeah. it. The debt level that there's extraordinary stress around around that, which mm. which I think is wrong, and I think as a society we should be you know thinking about how we deal with that because. Mm. Um, other countries can get around it. Why can't we? But um, but yeah, there's just ridiculous amounts of stress around it, and um, and relationships are fragile. And you know, you know, people yeah. have ways of dealing with mm. each other, and and especially you know, with divorce. I mean, if you're getting divorced, you obviously have got some issues around decision making together, and <laughs> and mm. um, and that sort of stuff. So it's never gonna. It's always going to be a more difficult um, path. Yeah, it's it's fraught, isn't it? And this whole affordability piece is really interesting as well because it's all about our national psyche in many regards, you know, our, our sense of entitlement that we should own a home. And, you know, I'm all for it. I'm a property person. I see the value in that and I understand why it's so important. Um, but maybe we need to, you know, maybe redefine that in some regards as well. You know, I know that I think you talked about it in a previous episode, Chris, and I can't remember which one it was, but it was about this idea about um, – Say in Italy, for instance, my sister lives in Italy and the family owns property. Yeah, and Japan too. So my sister and brother-in-law, for a period of time in their town, that, you know, they lived in a town where the family didn't own any property and so they actually rented. Mm. Um, and tenants have enormous power in mm. Italy as well, mm. particularly if you have a child. You can mm. never be evicted apparently. Mm. Um but, you know, they ended up buying a property. But, you know, they talk about that. So as a family, they know that they all own property and so therefore I, the level of anxiety around renting isn't quite as high, Yeah, you know, because it's not about individuals or the individual couple owning the property. I mean, as home ownership falls, which it has, you know, it was 70-odd percent, we're getting down to 60 and it maybe even keep on going, you know, there is a more of a focus on what is the renter's rights and the state government are looking at it more and more. I mean, pet ownership 
you know, can a landlord refuse you to have a pet? You know, can mm. a land like long, leases, you know, one year, you know, that's not long enough. Like, you know, five years, I think all these sort of things will start popping up and your research is going to be very interesting. Well, we, mm. we know that there's a, I mean, there's a generation of Australians now that, you know, are millennials, um, which you can't keep thinking, oh, they're all those, you know, the silly young kids because they're actually about to become the biggest working part of our population. Mm. Like they're all growing up ridiculously quickly. Um, a very large proportion of those guys are not going to own property until their parents die. Yeah. Mm. Because mm. that will be the only way they can afford it. Yeah. Which is kind of sobering. <laughs> um, and, but it also means that they're going to, they are living at home longer, like a higher proportion of them are living at home into even their 30s. Um, it means that they'll come home to look after elderly parents. Um, mm. and, and, um, and it means that, um, it, and they're also a completely different generation to um, exes and boomers in that they have no issues around collaboration. Like they think differently to us. They, you know, our, uh, the, you know, our way of being raised where you had to do things and, and it had to look a particular way or this was what you did. These guys are completely redefining all of that because of the technology, which is kind of breaking down the barriers, mm. making it easier to collaborate, you know, bringing all these things together. So they have very different expectations and I think um, that's going to be exciting to see how it plays out. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's even changing. Like there's build to rent now is, you know, it's only just started getting tested with the state government and then Mervac are doing a development and, you know, five years' time, build to rent, you know, is an investor basically buying a building and then, renting out the whole building. Um, mm. A super fund could do that. Mm. Um, there's so many, you know, so much money there that could facilitate that. But that would change all your options, you know? Yeah. You know, because you there's no, you basically as long as you, you know, behave yourself, you can stay renting that place forever. You don't have to yeah. worry about a landlord kicking you out. Well, one of the examples from the US that's growing in the property management space is a company, and I've completely forgotten the name, but um, but they basically are buying properties and using a, comb not Tinder, but a combination of, you know, Facebook mm. recognition. And so instead of renting a share house, you basically, it's like a share house alternative where you don't have to find people to share with you. The house is absolutely, the, the apartments are absolutely beautiful. All the, you know, there's fridges and, and stoves mm. and, and all of the stuff that you need to live in a communal space yep. is all there and, you know, it's all furnished and all that sort of stuff. And you be basically get your bedroom and 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 the communal space, but you're matched to everyone in the shared property based on preferences and and things like that. And you can mm. leave at any time, so you don't have to have a really long. Yeah, you don't have to. You, you subscribe to the service and and you pay for all of that stuff. And so there's no argument over bills or things like that because you're paying the service rather than paying flatmates yeah. or yeah. Um, things like that. Which yeah, is, I mean, there's a few. There's We Live, which is run by WeWork, yep. so um, they're they're doing, which is pretty cool. Like you literally. They just buy the whole building and then rent it out, yep. share communal yeah, spaces. Mm, yep. um, yeah, there's a couple of companies in Australia actually even in doing that as well. Yeah, um, and I heard about there's actually a small developer who's actually building these houses set up like that. So they're yep. basically little private spaces, you know, bedroom, bathroom, yep. communal spaces. Um, so, yeah. Cleaners it's be come in, clean it. Like yeah. there's no argument right, yeah. over who's, oh, got, who's turned good. it into a vacuum. I'm thinking I might want to move in. You know, kids can go. <laughs> 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 I love the idea. Every week we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing them a lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. 
Now, Kylie, have you brought us a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. So two things. When we bought our house, our agent took the deposit. It had gone to auction and got passed in about three weeks after auction. We made the offer. They accepted. We, we low, you know, you lowball, of course you do. Um, but they accepted <laughs> and um, because we had a fast settlement, but the agent told us after they'd accepted the deposit that they were going to adv- keep the advertisement running. And at that point, my husband completely lost his shit. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so I don't, so I think, and. Why um, would they keep the advertisement running? Well, because. In the case they got a better offer. Yeah, you have an exchange contract, so they're still on the market. Mm. Oh, you have an exchange contract. No. So you put but a whole deposit. deposit yeah, we paid yeah. a deposit. So, like, and so yeah, did you sign a contract? I can't remember. But I know that so but what was really funny was the agent actually was a neighbour because we had a shared dividing fence with him. <sighs> so what's the dumbo here? The dumbo you got your husband losing his shit or No, no, I think the, the I, I we always thought that the agent was really stupid because at that until that point. He had been a great agent and we'd really enjoyed working with him. He'd been really helpful. But at that, that he lost us at that point. Right, like, gotcha. Maybe it was a cooling off. It. Maybe he's just advertised it just to wait for the cooling off to finish five days. Yeah. Because that I might be it. Look, but but for our understanding as buyers were that mm. there were no other buyers in the market. Yeah. It had gone to auction. It hadn't sold. We'd made an offer. The offer had been accepted. We'd paid our deposit to show that it had been accepted mm. and that we were in good faith. Mm. And we and so it should and be done that, now. Take it off. Yeah, yeah. It, that's it. Take it off the market. Yeah, and he was like, yeah. "Oh no, I might find one." And I think he explained it to my husband, saying, "Well, there might be another buyer out there." And he was like, <laughs> "What? The- oh, you've got my deposit." <laughs> so you. So how did you actually get the deal done in the end? How did you get finally get to own the property? I think my husband said to him, if I see that property advertised, I will withdraw my deposit. Like, just let's be really, really clear about right, this. That's yep. what will happen. I will withdraw my deposit. Mm. And um, and it didn't hear so, you know, we kind of got through it. But the other Dumbo thing would be I go shopping for investment units all the time. I mean, not all the time, but, you know, I do it from time to time. And I'm, it's not like I'm, I necessarily have to buy them. Like a pair of boots. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, there's a story around that which is quite entertaining. But um, I, I did actually buy a property without telling my husband once. Um, it was all right. I had kind of sort of permission. Um, I came home from the Gold Coast with, oh, so, so oh, sweet. Oh, you didn't buy on the Gold Coast, did you? I did. Oh, oh now I'm quite happy the, with it. Okay, no, good, no, I'm happy with it. No, it worked out fine. Your Dumbo story, no, 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 it worked out fine. It worked out fine. Um, I bought at the bottom of the market. It was, it was good, although the bloody council rates are shocking. Mm. It seems to be a surprise to most agents that you would, when you go to do the inspection, that you would want to see or understand what the strata and rates are. But it, I can't tell you the number of properties I've, like in, units I've walked mm. into that you sort of say, okay, so can you tell me what the rate, oh, I'll have to get back to you. I oh, know. So and you just hello. Think, mm. what, what are the most common questions that buyers ask? Go and find yeah, out the answers so you can the, easily answer, answer them. them. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, so, so, yeah, that'd be my two. I don't know if either of those are terribly sexy. No, that's all right. Um, Quite often Dumbo stories aren't that sexy. There's some messages in there and I've got one we, we'll, we're going to. Um, yeah, I mean, you could just, yeah, I mean, guess focus on the agent there. Just say, look, I mean, the, the two property Dumbo is really just agents basically being poor operators, right? Mm, like the, yeah, you I know, talk he's about that. The first, yeah, that, so I mean, just maybe that's the, yeah. that's the, you know, learning here is that, yeah, well, I mean. 
sort your process out. <laughs> yes, you definitely yeah. sort your process out. I mean, that's a it's a really good learning actually because right now clients trying to buy property and um, it's a it's a property just in the north coast and they're living in Sydney. They've got a house, you know, and it's this kind of going to be there long term. They move to it in retirement, but they're buying a block of land and yeah, a real estate agent. You know, she's all friendly and she's lovely and. She says, look, I don't really deal with Until contracts. Until she's not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. And so I, they said, look, we've agreed on price. I said, well, have you signed a contract? I said, no, we haven't signed a contract. Um, they came to me very late. They hadn't their finance sorted. Yeah. So we quickly rushed around. We finally got that sorted. They haven't even got enough money for the deposit. So we have to wait till we, till we actually refinance. Um, and this is just an example of why agents hate some buyers just quietly yeah. <laughs> because, you know, making an offer when you haven't got your finance in place and you don't even have the deposit, uh, you know, it, that means nothing. Yeah, I mean, so in their situation it was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a no-brainer that they were going to get the money because it's a very, you know, in terms of their situation, it was more of a, a when than an if. Yeah. And so they've agreed to this. And I said, look, I would be just signing a contract on this now. You're going to get the finance, there's no doubt. Like, yeah. Um, while you, the longer you delay signing this contract, the longer it's on the market. Now, you could actually sign right now and only lose 0.25% um, and you'd have a five-day cooling off, but that would still give you a bit more confidence that you're not going to lose this. Yeah. Um, and the agent just keeps pushing them back and saying, oh, don't worry, just come back to me when you've, you know, you're ready to go. And, um, but, you so, know, in some regional areas, agents are very laissez-faire like that. Yeah. You know, that, and that is the way that they do stuff and that's okay. But Sydney people are different. Sydney people are very yeah. different, you know, <laughs> and sometimes it can happen in regional areas as well. But, yeah, that is a real different type of agents do sort of, uh, uh, not all, but are quite often more likely to stand by their word in a mm. regional area. There's some level of integrity to that. Um, and they may even instruct their owner along those lines as well. But in the city, yeah, it's very different. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess for them it's, it's still on the market, right? You yeah, never true, know. there's risk, absolutely. You still ever get that, you know, and if mm. they're in love with this place, it's a perfect block of land, they've negotiated. Done the and Murphy's Law too. Murphy's Law, because Murphy is God, we all know, yep. um, that, you know, it could have been sitting on the market for 200 days and then all of a sudden you've got another buyer. And that, but it does come back down to that that sense of confidence that comes in the agent's voice as well. Yeah. But, you know, subconsciously we hear that. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah. my God, I've got to do something. Scarcity. Ah. Yeah, I've already yeah. sold it. I've sold it for 440 mm. and, um, you know, that. and then all of a sudden, well, someone else is willing to buy it. It must be a good property. Yeah. And um, then that Social gives, proof. Yep. Yeah. So then that person goes, well, I'm willing to pay 500 or, and then you get a bidding war and then their agent's in a really bad position because they're saying, well, I've agreed to this, but my responsibility is to, to my vendor. vendor. And yep. What um, you're and what you're saying there, Chris, is actually why the cooling off period was actually introduced in New South Wales in the first place to protect buyers. Mm. So the idea being what you're saying to your your client is absolutely right in the sense that this is the way to protect yourself because mm. you're trusting the agent. You're hoping you know, there's a good chance that the agent probably is good for their word in those other areas other than big smoke. Um, but that's a risk involved with that, and so in order to m- take away that risk. The other risk that you risk, the other risk that you risk is the 0.025%. Um, and that's your sort of your mitigation uh, there, or that's the vendor's um, compensation should you exercise the risk to pull out of it. And that was designed to protect buyers. And so very much so I agree that it's a really good thing to enact to cover yourself. If yeah, you've got don't a really be good too laxy daisy on signing the contract if mm. you if you really want the place because you know if it's, you want it, go. It's yeah. um there's always people, new buyers on the market who are you know, seven o'clock on a Wednesday night, they start looking, and all of a sudden, 
next morning they make a phone call to the agent. Well, like and Kylie that just goes up the Gold Coast and buys property with her husband <laughs> knowing about it. <laughs> in, in my defence, we had been looking at Sydney property a couple, a couple of weekends prior and agreeing that, bloody hell, it's expensive. We're not going to do this. We should start looking elsewhere. And I had been going up to the auctions on the Gold Coast for about five years in a row. So <laughs> I knew what was going on. Fair <laughs> amount of background but research. I did, yeah, yeah, fair amount of background <laughs> research. But I did enjoy ringing him in the back of a cab and saying, <laughs> so honey. <laughs> <laughs> We're a bit strange. <laughs> oh, so Kylie, you are now a consultant. Yes. You are now, tell us what you're doing and how if our listeners want to get hold of you or get in touch with you, they can. Cool. So um, I am uh, setting up a consultancy that looks at content for the real estate industry. So focusing on research, um, building out the research that I uh, did at CoreLogic, um, working with um, doing a lot of content marketing. So how do you automate that and make it affordable and deliverable and useful for, for agents to provide really useful information to buyers and sellers um, to build their brand digitally and socially? Um, and I'm just going to be doing some freelancing and um, public speaking. So um, find me on LinkedIn. We'll put the link in the show notes. And thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Uh, the topic, as always, of these conversations which goes – or they go in various directions. It's been thoroughly delightful to chat to you. I'd love to get you back at some point once you've really established the business as well. So good yep. luck with all of that. Thank you. As I said, we'll put all the um, links in the show notes. We'll put some links to those reports that we've been referring to as yep, well. They're all free on the CoreLogic site. They are indeed. Uh, also, if you've got any questions, listeners, we want to hear from you. You can get onto theelephantintheroom.com.au, which is where you will find the show notes and the links, et cetera, et cetera. You can download the transcript of this episode if you so wish and also you can enter in any questions that you have that you would like us to answer so uh, we look forward to hearing from you and thank you for tuning in thanks Kylie appreciate it thanks Chris thanks Veronica thanks we want to make you a better elephant rider and this week's elephant rider training is for the buyer to learn from that property dumbo the elephant rider boot camp this week is around understanding what a holding deposit is so the reality is that buyers do need to understand that a holding deposit doesn't always hold the property. In New South Wales, now it's not the same in every state. In some states, when you make an offer and hand over some money, that's actually binding. In New South Wales, it isn't. And so in New South Wales, you know, and agents that ask for a holding deposit, I just look at them and I'm like, you're kidding me, aren't you? We all know it means nothing. I mean, they're obviously trying to get some level of commitment and demonstration, but we, it holds them to nothing and it holds the buyer to nothing. And I think that's this week's boot camp is buyers in New South Wales and in other states at some time. So you need to check with the agent. If I pay you a holding deposit, is the owner committed to this offer that we've agreed on, this, this this agreed price? And if not, what do I need to do to make sure the owner is committed to that? And so that's the question to ask buyers because in this instance, the reality is that after auction, quite often agents are still going to try to get you to buy under auction conditions, which means you'll have an offer accepted. Then you've got to run around, do your building, your personal inspection, your strata report, your your contract review, get your deposit organised. All that sort of stuff has to be done after your offer's accepted, which is why I actually recommend not making an offer until you have all that stuff done. So quite often, you know, the agent wants an offer for, from you and then you've got to run around doing all that stuff. And in the meantime, that property is available. 
for other buyers. And I can tell you that agent will have a very different tone in their voice when they talk to other buyers because they know that you're there and you're a strong, strong buyer and pretty much you're going to buy it. There's an element of risk, obviously, that one of your areas of due diligence will fall over, your finance might fall over. But the thing is that they're pretty confident. And so when they go out and talk to other buyers, they've got that confidence in their voice. And that can create urgency amongst other buyers and actually can get other buyers to suddenly compete with you. And so this is just something by the boot camp this week. Understand a holding deposit doesn't necessarily hold you. You need to find out what the level of commitment is from that owner and whether they are committed to you as a buyer and what the conditions are and whether or not they can pull out if they get a better offer. Tune in for our next episode when we look at property a little bit differently by interviewing Anthony Millett. He's the CEO of BrickX, which is a fractional property investment company, almost literally selling a brick at a time. Now, Anthony is a good friend of mine, and I'm actually the broker of BrickX who set up all the mortgages. So I'm a little bit conflicted, but Veronica was there to keep the chat as independent as possible. BrickX is a new way to invest in property, not without its risk, but I cannot see a future where fractional property investing doesn't play a part in people's portfolios. We talk about a novel way of investing in property and one that actually gives an opportunity to get into the property market to people who otherwise had thought they'd never get a chance. But is it all it's cracked up to be? Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.